Welcome to the CDC Podcast Minisode 2. If you've been following along, the plan is, at the end of every month, for myself and a co-host to list off a few games that have gotten none or next to no criticism or attention that we feel deserve otherwise. This could be anything from itchy art games to prestige-level indie games to AAA games that just slipped between the cracks. They're not necessarily good, but we feel that they are something worth spotlighting for whatever reason. With me this time is PhD student and editor-in-chief of Silver String Media's critical publishing arm, Zoya Street. Hey there. Hi. So, what do you have in the first slot? Okay, in the first slot, let's put Kate Tremblay's Say When. So, Kate Tremblay has made a few Twine games now, and she's a particular extraordinary writer when it comes to body horror and telling feminist narratives through body horror. And Say When is a really interesting application of that skill, where it's a game that completely revolves around just doing things to the body. So the character is, the the protagonist is introduced, and then you can install mods to that character's body. Uh, Body mods, heart mods, or brain mods. And you get updates about how her body has been changed, and what the state of her sanity is. And then at the end, you get illustrations of the kind of body that the protagonist has been left with. So, for example, I played around this where the protagonist ended up tearing off her own skin, replacing her skin with sheet metal, and then trying to masturbate while her fingers were made of metal and just like her whole body is made of metal. Remarkably, she actually had a good time. (laughs) So it's a really great creepy, disturbing game about trying to survive in a body that is never going to feel right for whatever reason. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at it here. It should be noted that right before you can start the game, there's this large content warning for suicide ideation, attempts, uh, emotional abuse. So... I guess be warned about that? Yeah, definitely definitely be aware of that and heed the warning at the start. It's one of those things where you've got to make a call of, like, is this, is this going to send you spiralling down or is it going to feel cathartic at this particular moment? But yeah, How does it work for you? Yeah, I, I, it felt cathartic for me, I think partly because it, it hones in so closely on body horror as a mode of expression. Kate Tremblay's games can be very triggering. She is... Uh, not very many people are as good at expressing the particular kind of disturbances and distress that she does. Yeah, she's she's good at making triggering games. I When I play her games, I feel like I've been triggered and I need to self-count but I've been triggered by someone who understood what they were doing, and there's something about that that you still have to be careful with it and you still have to set time aside for yourself around it and whatever. But there's something about that that feels validating. It feels like something's been seen that the world doesn't want to acknowledge exists. And I think that makes her work extremely powerful. That actually sounds pretty neat. I'll have to check this out. My first game is... It's a game from last year that I really very well loved. I think I put it in my number two game of the year for as much as for whatever that's worth. It's called The Fall. Mm. 
and apparently it's the first of a trilogy, but I didn't, or at least the first third of the full game, because they're a very small studio and they couldn't finish it, and I didn't realize that because it played like a complete experience. It's basically a, a sort of Metroidvania-looking game, but it's effectively a point-and-click adventure game with minimal combat strewn within for, against security robots. And the idea is that you, you're a, an AI controlling a bodysuit that fell from space, the titular fall, and you have no contact with your pilot within, and you don't know if he's dead or just injured, and you have to get him to a med bay to fix him on the off chance that he is alive because most of your internal circuitry is down. And you basically you have, you take control and you start moving the body as if you're in control, but you have directives as an AI. You can't harm your pilot. You can't, you have to obey instructions, but at the same time, you have to get over obstacles to find your way to this underground facilities that you fell into. You have to get to the medical bay, which is unfortunately on the, top floor and you have a lot of things in the way and like the first one is, is a security drone and you have to literally put yourself in harm's way so one of the little like special abilities that usually only the pilot can activate will automatically activate to protect the pilot so you're betraying your own internal code like programming in order to fulfill the programming and it causes this and as the story goes on it causes this like cognitive dissonance in a computer program. And the metaphor here is that it's like the becoming of consciousness. Like you're just coming from something that's just fulfilling base functions to something that's understanding and become self-aware. Like a computer can't be co cognitively dissonant. It just breaks down if you give it two contrary functions. Here, it's a, an AI that has to function. And I guess it's that idea that it's philosophically... It's like because existentialism gets thrown about a lot recently for whatever reason. And here to me, it's, this is a game that really explores that idea because it really is about what you are as an existent being or as becoming an existent conscious being. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's it kind of surp surprised me because it it's one of those games is, Oh, I have a cheap game in my steam library. How did that get there? And you play it, and it's like, hot damn, how did nobody tell me about this? It is actually very well executed, because you, you meet, like, other robots who are trying to fulfill their function, and it, but unfortunately he's working in a robot factory plant that has since broken down, but he's still trying to fulfill his function, as in trying to keep the plant operational, and you are a rogue element that has to either be decommissioned or repurposed, because that's what happens at a robot plant. Unfortunately, the main antagonist is literally is a robot just doing its job, and it doesn't know how to do otherwise. Damn. That's cool. I feel like it's like a little pretentious the way I try to describe it. It's just really dense in all the things that happen and how it explores it, and I'm not sure I, have, I always have the words to describe it. So kind of why I'm hoping someone else will take a look at it and tell me, oh, here are the words. Hmm. All right. <laughs> People need to make that happen. Yes, please. Mm. What's your second game? So, my second game... I'm going to pronounce this Kyoza, C-H-Y-R-Z-A, by Kitty Horror Show. I love Kyoza so much. It's a low-poly 3D art game where you're exploring these 
sculptural architectures in the desert to and picking up audiologues to tell a very strange, mysterious story about some people who found themselves in this desert. What I really love about Kaiza is that it forces you to confront the horror of being a thing, of being made into a thing by circumstances. And before that, it forces you to give in to this as an inevitability, that whatever humanity you have is going to come to an end. That humans are huddled together, trying to get some kind of like warmth and comfort from each other until this inevitable moment comes when they just turn into objects. Yeah, that it's moving as a story, but what's the the big accomplishment of Kaiser is that through really fundamental formal elements like the sound, the way the space is designed, the way that light casts shadow, the way that movement happens, that kind of thing. There's a tactile quality to that horrifying realization that creeps upon you and kind of is it completely takes you over, which is really wonderful. Yeah, I remember seeing screenshots for this game when I was writing about another piece of Kitty Horshaw's work. It's very yellow. <laughs> I know it's not a very intelligent thing to say, but it's an interesting thing to say because you point out in your piece on Sunset Spirit Steel that that's a game that's very red and it's rust red, and you're talking about the materiality of that game and how to you it felt very metallic. So yeah, there might be something there in kind of thinking about the use of like block color washes in Kitty Horror Show's work. And I guess the way you describe it, it feels like that there's more in here than I felt that there was in Sunset Steel Sky. So is like the metaphor made more apparent, or is it just like a feeling you got over time? I guess the interesting thing is that Sunset Spirit Steel seems to try harder to just hone in on the tactile feeling. Whereas Kaiser has these audio logs where you're trying to get bits of the story and the story has a beginning and a middle and an end. And that actually, I think, helped me to access that aesthetic feeling from the game. It just helps you to ground your interpretation of the things that you're seeing around you. Yeah, it does feel like there's more going on in Kaiser than in Sunset Spirit Steel. Although artists never like hearing people say things like that because it just means that we've missed the point, right? <laughs> Or that you says, oh no, that's my earlier work. Don't look at that. Don't look at that. Yeah. Those, yeah, that's the other reaction I sometimes get. Okay, my second game is cheating only slightly because I did host a podcast with the creator about it some time back. It's Deirdre Ki's Life Flashes By. It's a, a game where this woman author, I haven't played this in a, in a while, so the names escape me at the moment, is in a car crash and is and ends up in this limbo in between world where a manic pixie dream guy who is a literal pixie helps you by flashing your life before your eyes and after you finish the what really happened you get an alternative take of if you had made a different choice after this scene and how your life would have turned out differently to refocus on your math instead of pursuing your enjoyment of reading you end up in a completely different profession. Or if you if you decide to go with your friend on the summer holiday right before college instead of buckling down so you can get to the special program within the university, you have a different life choice. A lot of people like 
Derek K.I.'s later work with uh, Daniel uh, Pamplemousse. Mm. I can't remember the full title. Dominique Pamplemousse. It's Dominique all, it's all over when the fat lady sings. It's not over when yes. the fat lady sings. Uh, Dominic Pomplamoose was the part I always remember because it's such a fun name to say. Mm. Uh, a lot of people like went mad over that, but to me, Life Flashes is their superior work. That's really interesting. <laughs> I've never played Life Flashes by. I actually bought it. Ki actually sold physical copies to, I guess, like to finance the next thing they wanted to do, and I, I bought one, so I have a signed physical copy of it because I just it's interactive fiction. There's like. There's no challenge to it. It's clicking through dialogue, examining different parts of the scene as memory, and just taking in a lot of the like surrealist expressionism because this is technically in the character's head, or maybe not. Maybe there is a metaphysical connection to it. And I especially like the way it ends, that after you explore all the scenes and all the alternative takes, because you can do this in any order. Hmm. It, it, their, their scenes are little bubbles on this tree, I guess the representation of the character's life, and you can click them in any order. But once you've done all that, it sort of just fades out, and the two characters say bye to each other, and it's not clear, did she wake up and get better after the car accident? Did she pass on? It's, but it's still, it's, and I like that ambiguity. It's like there's actual, I don't want to say literary effort, because there, that word is so loaded. It's like there's actual effort in the writing and the storytelling and layeredness of the fiction towards meaning and towards the way it touches upon themes as well as it is to get an emotional response through the narrative. It's lo-fi, but I still think it is a great piece of work. And the thing is, even at the time, it's like it didn't get a whole lot of attention or like people, I've, I'm not going to say people jumping up and down in excitement, but I felt like this should get a, more attention, especially when Dominique Pomplemousse got so much attention. It was like, oh, well, yeah, that's good, but this is... A better work. That's super interesting. Mm. Have you ever had the chance to play Coffee and Misunderstanding? No, I haven't. If you ever get the chance, like because isn't that multiplayer? Or like it's multiplayer. Bathing? It's also installation based at the moment. Anyway, maybe they will. Yeah, I went to Indicase East, and they did have an installation, but it's late, and I have to run back to get the train to get home before it all shuts down. Before those late night things That's really start up. So I never really got the chance to actually sit down and actually do it or even just witness it. Mm. Yeah, Coffee and Misunderstanding is really very special. Um, There isn't anything else like it that exists. It's It's an interactive play, so it has some elements that are kind of like improv, but it's with dialogue wheels. And when you're playing it, you tend to be... Well, there's four people who play it. There's two people who are the puppets who are reading the dialogue that comes up on their on uh, two phones. And then there's two people behind them who are the puppet masters who choose the dialogue that they're going to say from another set of phones. And if it's possible, then there tends to be a projection on a screen behind the stage of the various dialogue options that the puppet masters can see on their phones. So the audience can then be like, choose this one, choose this one. So it tends to be this big like collaborative effort to make the conversation between the two puppets go in a particular direction, either trying to get them to end up going on a date together or trying to get everything to go as weird as possible. Like, it's a whole room full of people 
pushing at the boundaries of this social interaction the the social interaction and then pushing the labyrinth of dialogue options to figure out what's contained in the game and where this can actually go it's a really special experience definitely try and find an opportunity to play it though that sounds a lot harder than like just picking up any other digital game it is sadly Mm. um hopefully you know maybe one day they'll be able to release it as a mobile game that can be played as a party game like uh space team space team is that the one where you're shaking the phone because uh you went through a wormhole and that kind of thing oh I thought you were talking about another game where it's like each person has a different position on like the starship. That's what one I'm talking about, yeah. Okay, okay. Although with a mobile phone, it sounds a lot easier to set up than that game is. Well, coffee is mainly played through like being able to see what happens on the see what's coming up on the phone. So you could definitely play it as a party game just with four phones that are all connected to each other. But that, that involves a whole load of technical stuff that I can't even imagine trying to make that work. Yeah, don't ask me. I I barely get the RSS feed for this working every month. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what is your quote-unquote third game? Yeah, so for my third, I've chosen few toys, really, that have been made by a game artist called Oscar Stahlberg. So if you just scroll through this person's Tumblr, the most recent one is called Brick Block. And it's a little thing where you get to play with procedurally generated buildings. So it kind of makes this... If I knew my architectural history better than I do, I'd be able to identify what kind of style this is. But you're playing with this... <laughs> I have an architect right next to me. Go on, name that style. Oh no, now that's not the style. I don't know if it is a style. What? The red brick industrial urbanism thing well, with copper piping. Modern. Well, it's early modernism for sure. Like... Probably 1920s, 1915. Alright. So I'm going to call it 1920s grimy industrialism. Well, it wasn't grimy when it was first built. The thing is, it isn't just a matter of the materials, it's also the shapes and, and like, creation that you eventually make that determine the style, and it looks like you can do a lot with this. One thing I like about the aesthetic of Brick Block is the buildings have this heaviness to them because they're in this industrial style with the small windows that are really deeply embedded in the walls. And because you end up, if you put together some stranger shapes with some holes in the building, then you get these beautiful like brick archways that have a sense of weight to them. But at the same time, and I guess this is a spoiler, it's nice when you find the power you can make the building flow. And then it will kind of have this stem to it at the bottom, and it will just, like, slowly bob up and down. And so there's something very, very satisfying about making a really heavy-looking building float. And so it's just a really fun toy of kind of adding bits of building, taking bits of building away, and seeing how the program responds to various configurations of blocks of building. And there's lots of really beautiful, tiny little details that imply use cases for different bits of building that it's just incredibly charming and really beautifully textured and very calming to play with. It's a good fidget. And Oscar Stahlberg has also done similar kind of procedural generation toys, one around making islands. 
So you're dragging your mouse up and down to pull bits of land out of the ocean or like to press them back into the ocean. And again, there's lots of tiny little details that give you a sense of like a tactile feeling from doing this. Like you get some screen shake because you're like literally moving mountains. So it should feel like disruptive and dramatic. And it also has some lovely little secrets in it. I guess it's not a secret, there's a gif right on the preview, but it felt like a secret when I found it. Like, you're just kind of playing with it and looking around at things, and then you get surprised by a really beautiful golden fish kind of jumping up. It's just, it's really charming and really nice to play with. And there's another one where you play with procedurally generated planets, where you're adding land masses and populating those land masses, more or less. And there's a really nice way that it plays with perspective. So... If you build these highly populous cities with high-rises on the planet, then everything's out of proportion. So the cities are just like these huge stone corns, like, growing off the side of this planet. I'm looking at one of these GIFs where you can actually, like, shatter it into, like, one of those weird map shapes. Yeah. And then you can just, like, have it come back together. Yeah, it's amazing. There's loads of really beautiful touches to the way that Oscar Stahlberg animates these things, where at first glance you might think of these toys as like, oh, it's just a procedural building generator, or it's just a procedural planet generator. But there's all these little touches where it's clearly meant for playing with, and it's clearly meant for having these tactile qualities through the way that it's animated, or through sound effects, or, or screen effects, or the way that the planet slowly rotates... It's clearly meant for being like this adorable miniature that's really enjoyable to have in front of you. It does look like a little fun toy that you don't have to step on afterward. Yeah. You've lost it. (laughs) (laughs) The one downside of Legos. Yeah. Okay, this one, again, this one's a little bit of a cheat for me because it's technically in three parts. It's a mobile game called Steve Jackson's Sorcery. I don't know if you've heard of it, but uh, Steve Jackson back in the 80s, wrote these uh, game books where if you didn't like have people to play tabletop RPG, you could use these books as basically the dungeon master and your hero goes on adventure. And it did include rolling dice to see whether or not you succeeded in combats or what, what else. Right. But they've translated it to the mobile space into these interactive fiction games. and They work superbly well. They've revamped the combat system and had all these little things that are remembered by the game. It's like what choices did you make? Did you kill the bandit? Did you let him live? And so on and so forth. And so far, the sorcery in particular, and that's with an exclamation point at the end, it's part of the title, was a series of four books where each book would lead into the next one. And here they've taken that to, okay, whatever decisions you made prior will carry over and your status will carry over. What you have on your person, who your god or spirit animal is, will carry over to the next one. And it hasn't released at this time of recording, but I have a review copy, and it will be out on iOS and Android. Part 3 has is coming out this month. And they keep just improving the various things. Cause in the first one, it's like, oh, it's just a general travel through these lowlands, avoid the goblins, worry about evil magical witches and huts, and make your way to the far side, to the city of K.R.? I don't know how to pronounce it. And the second one is duplicitous city, and you have to figure out that's nicknamed the City of Traps, and you have to figure out the special riddle 
that gets to the end, and if you don't, and the city's going to be destroyed by goblins, you can actually reverse time and go back and try different things and explore different parts of the city to find the clues to help. I save the city, but apparently it is possible to fail saving the city, which I did not know. And the third one so far is in the next, in these these wastelands beyond the city. The whole thing is just this long, the basic story of an evil wizard has stolen a magical artifact, get the magical artifact back. But it's just the idea that instead of encounters, it's like, oh, you have bad guys, you must fight them. He says, no, it'll give you this text box, and you have to scroll through, read the text, and then you have a response. And eventually you could fight the monster, or you could talk the monster, you could cast a spell to do something, or it could be other encounters like, here's a sheer cliff, how do you get down? And it will diverge path. If you come to a fork in the road, you could go right, and it will take you to a different part of the map as you see your little character do the little Indiana Jones thing of dot, dot, dotting his way across the landscape. And it's just a very interesting way of doing the RPG, or rather, like, going on that venture story within a video game. Because you do fight, but it's like the combat is is actually well put together. It, the enemy has a bar, and you have a bar, and you have to drag your finger up and down it to expend a certain amount of energy. Whoever expended more energy than the other person wins the combat. Or you could do zero and guard against being attacked to lessen the impact, but whoever loses the combat gets hit for a lot. But if you guard, you get hit for a lot less, mm-hmm. and it refills your energy bar a little. So it's a neat way to, to do that. But they're also... It isn't like combat, combat, combat all the time. It's like, I think I went through like the first game. is like, okay, I fought in six fights this entire way through. And each one mattered because each one really could have really damaged me or killed me. Another great thing is that you can rewind to any point during your journey and make a different choice and come out with a completely different thing because it marks all the places along your travels where you made a decision or where you had an encounter. And if you tap on that, it will rewind. You'll lose all your progress, but it will rewind to that spot. And you get to continue on forward from there. It's a really interesting series, and and it's by Inkle. They're the studio that also put out 80 Days last year. And I believe it's the same engine, and that got talked about a lot, and it built upon a lot of the similar ideas or design ideas that they first implemented in these sorcery games. They keep iterating on them, and I just really think that they're interesting, fun adventures that could be looked on in that respect. Awesome. That's great. There's like a long history of mobile games as kind of figuring out how to take take those old text adventure games into a new medium. When I was looking into some of the early, some of the first projects that happened making games for mobile phone in the early noughties, quite a few of them where they were porting adventure games and trying to figure out how to make that work on these tiny devices. Well, like intuitively, it, it should be easier to do because if it's just all about technical limitations, like, oh, this is, this is a low-end device that doesn't have like a graphics card, then it should be simple and it's really not. There's a lot of considerations in terms of how do you interact with how do you interact with the system that's being fed back to you through the text? Like, do you have to type things in because the the game was originally built for Parser, or what do you do if typing is awful because you're on a mobile phone and that kind of thing? There's a lot of really interesting questions that go unacknowledged with regard to interactive fiction and text adventures about like basic stuff, like how do you actually interface with this thing? Or rather, they're basic questions that 
have been answered but aren't well known because the interactive fiction community is rather small and off to the fringes. Well, yeah, and then the questions are going to get revisited constantly as as people try to do new things or as people try to do things on different platforms and that kind of thing. And it sounds like it sounds like this has this has got some really interesting answers to that. I'd say they're fun answers. I don't know if like they're interesting or easily repeatable into other instances because this is a very basic story of you go on an adventure, here's a bunch of encounters that you come along the way. Some of them have effects like one character keeps showing up here and then because I spared his life so he keeps showing up trying to pay me back but always failing. (laughs) 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 Well, it, it, it doesn't come off comedic but Certain things carry over and will have an effect later down the line. But I, I can see, like, there's lessons to be learned, but it's a good game on its own. Cool. So I don't, I don't want to say, like, that's the only thing to come out of it. Well, this has gone on about long enough, and you can see all the games, and I do mean all of them, even those that weren't planned to be talked about, down in the show notes. Hope you check them out. Hope you get the itch to say something about them. Thank you, Zoya, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Bye.